Hear this, all peoples. Give ear, all inhabitants of the world, both low and high, rich and poor together. My mouth shall speak wisdom. The meditation of my heart shall be understanding. I will incline my ear to a proverb. I will solve my riddle to the music of the lyre. Why should I fear in times of trouble when the iniquity of those who cheat me surround me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches? Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die, The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Their graves are their homes forever, their dwelling place for who all generations, though they call lands by their own names. Man in his pomp will not remain. He is like the beasts that perish. This is the path of those who have foolish confidence, yet after them people approve their boasts. Selah. Like sheep they are appointed for Sheol. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in Sheol with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me, Selah. Be not afraid when a man becomes rich, when the glory of his house increases. For when he dies, he will carry nothing away. His glory will not go down after him. For though while he lives, he counts himself blessed, and though you get praise when you do well for yourself, his soul will go to the generation of his fathers who will never again see light. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. I know Melby was pleased that I selected a a psalm that has a lot of verses. (laughs) But I do appreciate her reading it nonetheless. You know, a recent study indicates that the average attention of human beings, the average life or attention uh, attention, uh, for a human being is 8.25 seconds. Get that? 8.25 seconds. That's your attention span. Now, Remember, that's average, so that means some are way up here and some of your, I don't know where you are, but you're down here somewhere. So, you know, as I thought about the sermon, I thought, you know, since that's our attention span, I should give a very brief sermon. So I was looking for something that would be appropriate, and I found one. There's a, a kind of a southern gospel song that's written about a, a pastor named Rick, and Rick was known for giving long sermons. Some people really liked that, and some people, of course, were missing lunch and other things, so they weren't real happy with that. So one Sunday morning, Rick got up, he walked up to the pulpit, and he delivered, he delivered, delivered this sermon, love, 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 and he sat down. I thought, that would be great this morning, so... Go in peace. No, no, we're not going to stop there. But, you know, I I remember uh, when you hear the word but, and I use the word but after that, 
whatever I said before is negated. So even though I was going to give that servant love, 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 but uh, I have something else in mind. So we're looking at Psalm 49. Psalm 49. I titled this Selah. It's a word that's a, uh, it's kind of a mysterious word. Uh, actually, theologians or experts, of which I am not one, have debated the meaning of, of the word. Uh, Selah show, shows up many, many times in the Bible. 71 times in the book of Psalms and three times in the book of Habakkuk. That's the only time the word appears in the Bible. You won't find it anywhere else. So I, I thought, well, what does it mean? I, you know, I've read this for years, you know, Selah, 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 but I never knew what it meant. So I started doing some research, and uh, one camp thinks it's a musical term. Because remember, the Psalms are musical. Okay? So it, it's kind of an interlude, a pause. But then there's another camp that says, you know, uh, by the way, that would make sense because if you look at the psalm, it's written to the sons of Korah, who were musicians in, in, at that time. But the other meaning of seal that it came across means to pause and contemplate one's relationship with the Lord. That's the seal I'm talking about. That's the seal I'm talking about. The Amplified Bible actually says it this way. It says to pause and calmly think about. To pause and calmly think about. I, I challenge you to look at Psalm 49 and see where that word appears, Selah. We'll get to that in a little bit. It's this interpretation, this pause and contemplate, that I'm going to be referring to this morning. As we look at this psalm, it's my hope that each of us would pause and contemplate our relationship with the Lord. This psalm is a little different than the other ones. Many of the psalms begin with praise and honor to God. Psalm 48 says, Begin, uh, begins with, Great is the Lord, most worthy of praise. Psalm 47 says, Clap your hands, all you nations. Shout to, shout to God with cries of joy. But Psalm 49 is different. It's called a wisdom psalm. It's a psalm that gives instruction. It's addressed to all people. All who live in this world, believe it or not, that includes us. Everyone is called to pay attention. No exceptions. Verse 1 says, hear this, all you peoples. Listen, all who live in this world, high and low, rich and poor alike. It says to me, I'm about to tell you something very important. Now, in order to pause and contemplate, I think we have to start with the concept of time. Ecclesiastes, as you know, is one of my favorites. It says, there's a time for everything. And that's used many times at, uh, at funerals and other places, but uh, it, it, it has a lot of wisdom in it. There's a time for everything. Time is an interesting topic. As we, as we look ahead to time, there's things that seem they'll never happen. For example, when you were young, which I know all of it, well, we're still young, but when we were much younger, like in our teens, we looked forward to getting a driver's license. Remember that? Could hardly wait. Could hardly wait. And then a little later, maybe we were looking forward to maybe getting married or getting a new job or something like that. It seemed it would never happen. It would never happen. Or if you were sitting in a high school class that was boring, remember that? Time would never end. 
45 minutes seemed like five years. That's one way to look at time. And then in, in our era, you know, uh, we've all gone through experiences. This morning, on the way here, I was behind Dennis and Louise at the stoplight. The light would never change. We must have sat there for at least a minute. It just seemed it would never end. Or you make a phone call. I know we've all had this experience. You call the doctor's office for an appointment. And it begins by saying, Welcome. We have changed our system. Push this, push that, push that. And then it says, All of our people are currently busy. Just wait a little bit, we'll be with you. And then the music plays. And it goes on. And every now and then, a voice pops up and says, Our people are still busy. Hang on. Or you can leave a, you can leave a callback number. And then, of course, we listen again. And, of course, it seems time will never end. And I know we've all had that experience. I've been on the phone for 20, 30 minutes sometimes. Usually I hang up because I get frustrated before that. But it seems time will never end. Now, when we look backward from our era, we look backward, time seems to have flown by. I'll bet everybody has said or has thought, where did the time go? Where did the time go? You know, a couple years ago, uh, we had a 50-year reunion for my college football team. I hadn't seen most of those people in 50 years. We started talking. It seemed like it was just yesterday, right? You all had the experience. You go back to a college or high school reunion or something. It seems like time has flown by. And, of course, it hasn't in a lot of ways, but, uh, but again, looking backwards, it certainly has. We get a good picture of, of the relationship that God looks at time from his word. In the book of James, he puts it this way. You are a mist that appears for a time a while and then vanishes. That's from God's word. You are a mist, appears for a little while and then vanishes. Now, that reminds us that God's time is certainly... His, his view of time is certainly far different from ours. You know, uh, another verse in, in the Bible, in Psalms 90, it says, the length of our days is 70 years, or 80, if you have the strength. Yet their span is but trouble and sorrow, for they pass away quickly, and we fly away. When, when we look at, at things, we see people in, in the newspaper who have passed away at age 80, 90, 100, whatever, we say, wow, they lived a long time. But God says, you're just a mist. You're, here, you're not here that long. And then in verse 5, it says, the psalmist asks a question. In Psalm 49, 5, it says this, Why should I fear when evil days come, when wicked deceivers surround me? Now, I think it's important to note that the word fear here is not talking about natural disasters. It's not talking about disasters or sickness or illness. He's specifically talking about the trouble that evil people bring during our time here on earth. Uh, putting it another way, it's, it's kind of the fear of man. It's the fear that those who are weak and vulnerable feel when the wealthy and powerful oppress them. A form of discouragement. 
the godly face as they deal in an ungodly world. And we know throughout history, and still goes on today, we've seen examples of how the wealthy and powerful take advantage of the poor. Now, when you read that, you know, people, some people get excited because they, they see that word riches and, and all of that. Well, riches aren't wrong, nor are they evil in themselves. We know that God granted wealth to many, many people in the Bible. Think of Abraham. Think of Solomon. I mean, you couldn't get any more money and wealth than he had. But there were those like the Pharisees who believed that wealth indicates righteous behavior. Uh, I hate to tell you, but that's not true. Read the Bible carefully and you see that is not true. What is wealth? How do people measure it? Well, we usually connect wealth to money or possessions. It's interesting, though, third world countries might look at us and say, you know what, as a sign of wealth, you can turn on the water faucet and get water. I have to walk three miles to get it. They would certainly say we're wealthy, just being able to turn on the water faucet. Or to get medical attention. You know, in in the African nations as a whole now, there are differences, of course, because there are a lot of African nations, but you're 30 times more likely to die before the age of five than we are here. Think of that. Or how about this one? Four in ten children die in the southern parts of Africa, South Africa excluded, within the first 28 days of their life. Think about that. Four out of ten kids die before their 28th day of life. I'm sure when they look at us, no matter how much possession we have or how much money we have, they say, you know what? You're, you're pretty wealthy. So it's not talking about wealth as such. Verse 6 tells us exactly what we're talking about. Verse 6 says, Those who trust in their wealth, those who boast about their wealth, those whose deepest satisfaction is gaining and measuring wealth and looking for ways to display it. Again, there are many wealthy people that do great things for humanity. But there's also the temptation to allow wealth to control our lives. And that's what we're talking about here. That's why in the Bible it says numbers of times, it talks about wealth. In 1 Timothy 6.10, it says, The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager, eager for money have wandered from the faith, pierced themselves with many griefs. We have seen that happen, I'm sure. In Ecclesiastes 5.10, it says, Whoever loves money never has enough money. Whoever loves wealth never is satisfied with his income. This, too, is meaningless. Many of you, I'm sure, are familiar with that famous quote from John D. Rockefeller. When, when somebody asks him, how much is enough? His response is, just a little more. Now, I have to be fair to John Rockefeller. You know, that, we know that part of the quote. What you may not know is some of the other things in his life. You know, John Rockefeller was a Christian. Devoted to daily Bible reading, weekly prayer meetings, tithing, resting on the Sabbath. 
Where did he get this idea that just a little more? You know where it came from? I know Pastor Walter would be upset. It came from John Wesley. Did you ever hear John Wesley? John Wesley. John Wesley uh, gave a sermon called The Use of Money. And in it, he said this, Gain all you can, save all you can, give all you can. And John Rockefeller did just that. Uh, it's been estimated he gave over $550 million to a very, various charities, Christian and otherwise. What Wesley was saying, and what John Rockefeller was saying, is that if we gave all we could, there wouldn't be any poor people. There wouldn't be any need. But, you know, uh, most people don't look at the whole Rockefeller story or the whole John Wesley story. They just look at that just a little bit more. That's the only part that sticks in their heart. Gaining all you can involves taking advantage of others, if that's where you stop. Now, although this psalm, I I think, is specifically talking about money and wealth, you know, riches can come in other forms, too, and a lot of times they're interrelated. Of course, what you have, houses, cars, whatever, whatever. What you do, your job, your position, your influence, what you know, degrees, research, books written, The Bible gives us some clear examples of the misuse of wealth. In Luke 12, 15 to 21, uh, Jesus is talking, and and one person there says, uh, make my brother give me part of of the wealth that I'm due. And Jesus says this, look out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And then he told them this parable. The ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. Then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And there I will store my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you're a fool. You're a fool. This very night, your life will be demanded of you. Then you will get what you've been preparing for your whole life. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things, but is not rich toward God. You know, this was a man who lived in luxury. There's another man in Luke 16 did the same thing. If you remember, uh, there was a beggar, Lazarus, and a rich man, and uh, the rich man never shared with the, the beggar his, his crumbs. And at the end, end of life, they ended up in different places. Lazarus was in heaven, and the rich man was in hell because he did not share his wealth. He got taken over by this idea of getting more and more for my glory, not for God's glory. Certainly both these guys had, you know, everything we would want as as a human being. They had possessions, they had uh, position. They thought they had security, but they were both called fools in God's eyes. 
Now, after all this talk about wealth in the beginning of uh, Psalm 49, he starts, he ends at verse 13 with, with this sobering fact. He says, No one can redeem the life of another or give to God a ransom for him. For all can see that wise men die. The foolish and the senseless all alike perish and leave their wealth to others. By the way, this is at Selah, is put at the end of that verse 13, after the verse I just read to you. Remember that word, Selah. Pause and contemplate. No man can redeem another man. No payback is enough. No help in life to come. In the end, everyone dies. Rich, poor, black, white, American, African, Christians and non-Christians. No one can avoid it. My, my first paying job was, a, I took care of a cemetery up in Akron called Mount Zion. Many of you probably know where that is. We lived right kind of next to it. Uh, I find the cemetery to be very interesting. Number one, it's quiet. There's no arguing, no debating, no lying, no cheating, no noise, just quiet. Number two, as I looked around, something really hit me. You know what? Everyone here is equal. Everyone here is equal. What job the person had, how much wealth he had, how powerful he was, doesn't matter. The factory worker is buried next to the businessman. Next to him is a teacher. Down the road is the minister. Now, it's true that all the markers are different. Some get huge markers and so forth and so on. But everybody's equal. And then number three, something I always like to do in cemeteries, I still do, I like to read the inscriptions on the tombstones. A lot of times it's just, you know, a name and a date and whatever, but there are others. Some people choose to be funny. How many of you know, I know, I, I, I was going to mention Merv Griffin to the second group, but they, don't, they won't know who he was. Anybody know who Merv Griffin was? Remember Merv Griffin? His, his, uh, kind of his slogan was, I'll be right back after the message, right? Well, this is what he has on his tombstones. I will not be right back after this message. Or John Yeast. I love this one. John Yeast has on his tombstone. Pardon me for not rising. Okay? So some choose to be funny. Others choose to have an inscription which kind of tells you what they stood for. Martin Luther King Jr. Free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty. Free at last. My, my son Mark uh, lives next to a big cemetery in Bowling Green, Kentucky. And uh, I know we walked around there a couple years ago. And there's a, a, huge, a huge tombstone. And as I was reading, the back of it is a whole paragraph. A whole paragraph. And it's interesting because it was, it's, it's a teacher who was buried there. And it was written by his students. And they tell how much they appreciated, how much he did for them. Wow. Well, none of those markers are in the cemetery that I took care of. But there is one that caught my eye. And I could even take it, take it to you, take you to it today if I was there. It says this. He who comes this grave to see, prepare yourself to follow me. Wow. What a message. 
He who comes this grave to see, prepare yourself to follow me. You know, that gravestone, like Psalm 49, states some very important information. doesn't matter how rich you are, what job you have, what friends you have, whatever. We need to prepare for the life to follow. So you billionaire, the beggar, they face the same fate. No one can pay God to avoid it. No one can live on forever. What happens to our wealth? Someone gets it. Or the state gets it. Or my favorite TV commercial. How many of you know Mr. Marbles on TV? Anybody know Mr. Marbles? Mr. Marbles is a cat. And there's a, a TV commercial that, you know, some rich, uh, famous guy has just passed away, and now they have the reading of the will. And, of course, all the, all, the, all the kids are there looking forward. Oh, my goodness, what am I going to get? Well, Audrey, Audrey gets the, the business. Oh, wow, that's great. The son, Todd, he gets a model train set. Oh, my word, a model train set. And then the prized possession, the summer house, goes to Mr. Marbles, the cat. Oh, my goodness. You know, we, we accumulate wealth, and, and in the end, there's always a battle, not always, but many times a battle over who gets what. Voltaire was a famous French writer, very popular in France, very rich. He was an atheist, an enemy of Christianity. When his time to die was at hand, he, he cried to his doctor in pain, I will give you half of all my possessions if you give me six more months to live. He died in despair. He did not know his life was not in the hands of man, and he was not prepared. The end of Psalm 49 is a reminder of all of us, to all of us, that when we leave this world, we take nothing with us. Now, it's interesting, through the ages, uh, people have done all kinds of things. Pharaoh, remember pharaohs? They took all kinds of possessions and gold and, and riches and what have you and would bury them with them, so he'd be prepared for the next life. Some people more recently... I know one, one man was buried, they had a, a, a regular room filled with his favorite things. He buried in the room. Some guys got buried in their cars. But you know what? The Bible says, nah, you can't take anything with you. It's not going to happen. We all leave with nothing. We all be judged by what we have done, what we've said. God does not show favoritism. The Bible says that many times. He created each of us with a special, one-of-a-kind design. And I think that's so important to remember. We're all different. We're all special. We all have a special design. No one else matches it. Then verse 20 in Psalm 49 says this, A man who has riches without understanding is like the beast that perish. There's a, a poem that I really like, and I, you probably have heard this, uh, it's called The Dash. Many times it's written, uh, read at, at a funeral. And it, it goes like this. It says, I read of a man who stood to speak at the funeral of a friend. He referred to the dates on the tombstones from the beginning to the end. He noted that the first date, the first came the date of birth and spoke of the last date with tears. But he said, what mattered most of all, was the dash between those years. 
For the dash represents all the time that was spent on earth alive. And now only those who love them know what that line is worth. For it matters not how much we own, the cars, the house, the cash. So think about this hard and long. Are there things you'd like to change? For you never know how much time is left that can still be rearranged. So when your eulogy is read, with your life's actions to rehash, would you be proud of the things they say about how you spent your dash? Some might say Psalm 49 is, is depressing. It's too negative. It focuses on death. But I think it focuses on life as well. As I said earlier, riches come in a variety of forms. Money is the obvious one, but also the gifts God gave you. What we know, how we use it. It is a truism that everyone will die. And we're all accountable for what we do with our riches. I like to think of Psalm 49 as a, a time to pause and contemplate how we use our wealth in whatever form that may come to the glory of God. It's far better to make God our life than to make life our God. We can ask ourselves this morning, what pathway am I on? Selah.